When I asked him what I should talk about this morning, he said, Jerry, tell them your story. Uh, Whatever it is you're going to do, make sure you tell them your story. But I want you, before we begin, I want you to stand, and I'm going to read Psalm 31. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 31. And I'm going to read Psalm 31, beginning at verse 1. This is David uh, writing this, and, and David, has, he, he's dealing with some pretty tough stuff, with some stuff that, quite honestly, he doesn't really understand. And he says this, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame, and your righteousness deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love, because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place." Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also, for my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, and they, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. Let's pray. Father, our, des- our desire this morning is that we would hear from you, that you would set aside this broken vessel, that you would set aside this stammering tongue, that you would set aside this personality, and God, that we would hear from you. Our desire is that as you look down from heaven this morning, that you would be pleased with what has already taken place that you would be pleased with the words that are about to be spoken, that you would be pleased with your people as we go from here. Father, once again, our desire is that this morning as we meet together, that it might be obvious to those that we go and get in contact with throughout this week, that these people have spent time this week, today, at this moment, in the presence of God. So we commit this time to you. We ask for your blessing on it. We praise you for what you've already done. We thank you for what you're going to do. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite verses is Proverbs 16.9. Proverbs 16.9 is a verse that I have uh, memorized and I've I've hung on to for years. But Proverbs 16.9 in the NIV says this, In his heart a man plans his course, but it is the Lord who determines his steps. I'm a guy that 
that likes to, to plan things. I, I come from the construction industry. I owned a business, owned a lumber company, was involved in property development and all those kind of things. And I did that after studying for the ministry at Liberty University. See, you go to Liberty, you get all kinds of stuff there. But my, my father was involved in the building industry and the hardware industry. And, and um, I was always the kind of guy that uh, had plans for whatever we did. When Tim was uh, our pastor up in Peru, we built a church. We physically built a church. We didn't hire people to do it. We physically built a church. And there were plans. There were blueprints. There were things that we had taken and put in place. And it was all good. Same way in our lives. In his heart, a man plans his course. One of the things that we do, one of the things that we do, and we have desires for our children, we have plans for us, we have all kinds of things in mind as to what we would like for us, for our children, for our family. But it is the Lord who determines his steps. And some of those plans may be some of the best laid plans, and you might even say, God, what in the world is wrong with this plan? But God determines our steps. And sometimes... Sometimes the steps that we find ourselves in are steps that we just don't understand. In fact, sometimes they're steps that we don't even like. But they are steps, which insinuates that there is to be progress. We are to move forward. We are continue to move forward. And even though we may not know what those steps are, even though we may not like what's going on, they have been determined by Almighty God. So they're right. They're good. They're beyond our understanding. But they have been determined by God. My story is a story of I um, was raised in a Christian home. Um, Good family, good people. I was raised in the Dutch Reformed Church. If you know anything about the Dutch, if you ain't Dutch, you ain't much. So just remember that. I was raised in the Dutch Reformed Church, and I now call it the Dutch Deformed Church, because what they used to do to us is on every Sunday, uh, and Saturday nights, my mom, my grandpa, my grandma would prepare the meals on Sunday night, and Sunday morning we got up, put on our suit, put on our tie, made sure we were dressed to the hilt, went to church. When we came home, we ate what was cooked the night before, We weren't allowed to watch TV. We weren't allowed to go outside and play. We had to sit in the house because this was the day of the Lord. And then we'd go back to church that night with our suit and our tie on, go to church, come home, go to bed, and that was it. That was our Sunday. I was good. I was uh, in, in high school. My nickname was Rev. I, um, I wasn't weird. I wasn't a nerd. I actually thought I was pretty cool. But when I saw my friends going out on Friday nights and getting drunk and barfing in the bushes, I didn't think that was too cool. So I didn't have anything to do with it. They didn't cuss around me. I didn't use cuss words, any of that stuff. I was good. And then I, uh, we moved, and I went to this Baptist church. This pastor got up there, and he preached a sermon from Isaiah 64. If you know anything about Isaiah 64, it seems as though it meanders long, and then all of a sudden, there's a a verse in there. In verse 6, it says, All my righteousness 
is as filthy rags. I thought, what is that about? God, you don't know me. Isaiah, you have no idea what you're talking about because if you know me and you know our family, we got it all together. But he kept on harping on the fact that all my righteousness is as filthy rags. All my righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Over and over and over again. And pretty soon that's all I had was my righteousness. That was it. And God exposed to me. He talked about you needed to be saved. And I thought, saved from what? I don't need to be saved from anything. I'm good. I'm not going anywhere. I'm good. But God impressed on me that my righteous, Jerry's righteousness, was as though it was dung. It was a filthy rag. And God saved me. From the time I was in sixth grade, that was at 16 years of age, but from the time that I was in sixth grade, I had a pastor that I really liked. It wasn't anything like Tim, but it was a pastor I really liked. And I wanted to be a pastor when I grew up. And my dad, my grandpa, always introduced me. I was the oldest of, of seven grandchildren. Um, they always introduced me as, this is Jerry, our oldest son. He's going to be a pastor. I was under some pretty heavy pressure. I went away to school, to Liberty University, to study for the ministry. I get to Liberty University, had the opportunity to live in a condemned hotel, went to school in a condemned school building, and rode on buses that were so rickety and so bad that when we had to go from the mainland to the island, we, because of the bridge was so bad, we had to get off the buses, walk across the bridge, and then let the bus come across and then pick us back up on the other side. And my parents paid for that. <laughs> Big bucks. They paid for that. But then God gave me the opportunity to move into the first dorm on Liberty Mountain, which unfortunately now has already been leveled. That's giving you a little bit of an idea of how old I am, but it's been leveled. And I have children that have gone there and graduated. I have a daughter out there right now that is going to school. But some of the best days of my life. I met my wife my sophomore year. My wife told me I could never be a pastor's wife. So I changed my, my major from pastoral ministry to church ministries. And I reasoned in my mind that God had a need for Christian businessmen. I didn't need to be a pastor. I didn't need to do all that stuff. God needed Christian businessmen. You know what? God does need Christian businessmen. God needs Christian politicians. God needs Christian lawyers, if there's even such a thing. God needs them. He uses them. And I came home and went into business with my father. He was in business with two other guys. And I ended up buying out the two partners. And we built, God allowed us to build an amazing business that we used for ministry. We supported missions. We we helped in building the church. We, we uh, paid for people to go to, to school and all those kind of things, and we loved it. And we did it anonymously. Nobody knew anything about it. My dad ended up getting Parkinson's, and as a result, I, uh, I carried on and um, was involved in, uh, ended up buying my own business apart from my dad, was involved in real estate. And I remember um, I did not hide my faith. I wasn't out there preaching all the time, but I didn't hide my faith. And I had a number of people that would come to me and say, Jerry, you belong in ministry. And I said, well, you know what? I am in ministry. What God's given me, I use for ministry. 
They said, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You belong in the pastorate. I said, well, if God wants me in the pastorate, he's going to have to show me he wants me in the pastorate because all I have here is his anyways. I'm just a steward of it. And if he wants me in the ministry, he's going to have to take care of it. That is one of the most stupid things you could ever say. Because within a matter of three months' time, I had a business that was doing extremely well. It was growing fast. I got a new bookkeeper. I got a new accountant and a new computer system. And in a matter of three months, I found out that we had lost a million and a half bucks in inventory. Somehow, someway, it went somewhere because of the accounting system. I... Um, uh, my, my bookkeeper was paying taxes but not filing them. So the government says, well, that's nice you gave us money, but you've got to file it, so you need to pay the penalties on top of that. I got IRS penalties of a quarter of a million dollars. And my line of credit was impacted because in the lumber business, you have to buy lumber at a particular time in order to make sure you've got to buy it when it's low in December and January so that when you get into the building months, you can... You, you've bought it right to where you can sell it where the margins have increased. I couldn't do it. It was almost, I don't know if you've ever sat by, well, I, I, my wife, if my wife were here, she'd say, why did you say that? But if you ever sat by a toilet and you flush the toilet and it's going round and round and the water's coming up and the water's coming up and the water's coming up and you're going, ah, and it's, it's over. I mean, it's over. My son said, Dad, you were in the perfect storm. God took my business away just like that. So I, th- I thought I'd get in the building business. I had plans of taking that business and building, a, uh, building another one and getting involved in some building things and, and uh, was able to get started in that. All of a sudden, as you know, the housing industry in 2009, 2010 went in the tank, right as we're getting into it. And I remember, I remember so succinctly, I had taught... Uh, the adult Bible class in our church, pretty good-sized class. And there was a group of four ladies that met every Monday morning at Bob Evans. They said, Jerry, we're going to pray for you. They said that, Jerry, we've been praying for you, and we think that you ought to be in the ministry. I said, ladies, I'll tell you what. I don't know what God's doing, but you go ahead and pray for me. You go ahead and pray for me. They said, we're going to do that. I left those ladies. I had gone to breakfast that morning at Bob Evans meeting somebody else and left those ladies. And I was heading home because I had to go north from where uh, uh, I had met them. Had to go about 60 miles north to where we had these properties. And I had a friend that I went to college with. He pastors a church in Florida here, a church of about 5,000. He was on a traveling team with me when I was traveling with Dr. Falwell. We would go out on weekends without Dr. Falwell, but we had a group that would go out on weekends and fill churches that were pastoralist, maybe had some needs, but there was a group of us that were planning on going out once we graduated from school, and we were going to build a church. We were going out as a team, and we were going to build a church. Great concept, except the guy who was supposed to be senior pastor met this hot young lady that really didn't want to be a pastor's wife and decided business was the thing. Those guys went out into ministry. This guy's pastoring a church. I get a call out of the blue. I just happened to stop in the house. I get a call out of the blue from him, and he says, Jer. I said, what in the world are you doing calling me at home in the middle of the day? He says, I don't know. God just laid it on my heart to call you. When in the world are you going to get out of your own will and get in the center of God's will and get in ministry? I told him, shut up. 
and I told him to pray for me. And he said, Jerry, I'll pray for you. I get up to the, this is about two hours later, I get up to the place where I'm supposed to be, and a dear friend of Tim's, Tim knows him, dear friend of mine, says, Jerry, how about if we go for coffee? I said, okay, good. So we go to coffee. He goes, Cheryl and I were praying for you and Robbie last night, <clears throat> and we think you ought to be in the ministry. It's like, you've got to be kidding me. I called my wife and I said, honey, guess what? I think we need to talk about something. Because that's not a coincidence. Within a matter of a couple of months, our church, pretty good-sized church, was our, our pastor was beginning to transition, looking at retirement, needed some help, and he said that they were looking for an administrative pastor. He said, Jerry, would you do it? I said, absolutely. And God allowed me to serve alongside of a man who had been in ministry for 27 years at that particular church. And as a result of that, there were some exciting things that were happening. We were talking about do, uh, uh, starting a ministry that came alongside of pastors who were struggling, the ministry called the Center for Pastoral Renewal. We had laid out all the plans. Remember, in his heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. I had, we, uh, our pastor had retired. We had called a new senior pastor. I had worked with him for about six months, and I sh- shared with him what God had put in my heart to do. He said, Jerry, I hate to lose you, but I'm, all, I'm with you. We announced in December of 2013 that I was going to be heading out in July of 2014 to start this ministry, Center for Pastoral Renewal, which was a ministry for pastors who were just struggling, hurting, depressed, whatever the case may be, we were going to come alongside of them and their churches. My wife's a teacher, K-5 teacher in the Christian school we have there, and the flu had been going around in the uh, school. And she never really caught it, but all of a sudden one day, I just wasn't feeling good. And it was um, January 22nd of 2014. So Wednesday night, came home after church, and I said, man, I just don't feel good. She said, well, let's take you to the hospital now. I said, no, 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 because if you know anything about me with hospitals, Tim just snorted and laughed here. If I go to the hospital to visit you, chances are I'm passing out. As we begin to look at all the gadgets that are going on, you tell me your story. Our hospital, we have a walkway from the parking lot to the hospital, and literally every time I go to see somebody, as I'm walking across that walkway, I'm praying, God, please keep me on my feet. Because chances are I'm passing out. My wife wanted to take me to the hospital, and I said, no. But if I'm not feeling better in the morning, we can do it. Next morning, I was not doing well at all. She takes me to the hospital. I get to the emergency room, and it was, from what I understand, it was pretty humorous. They brought out this wheelchair, and I couldn't even get in the wheelchair. I was sitting down on the little footy pedals, you know, with my back up in the seat, and they were dragging me in as I was out of it. I thought I had the flu. Get in the emergency room, and all of a sudden, they're taking me away someplace. And um, a chaplain for the ho- from the hospital, about an hour after I was there, I came to my wife and told her, your husband is probably not, not going to make it through the day. I thought I had the flu, but I was unconscious at this point. I had no idea what was going on. Found out if you know anything about medicine, my blood sugar was 1,750. My triglycerides were over 1,800. And they said, my kids, my kids laugh at this, they said, 
there is next to 0% chance he's going to make it. But if he does, there will be major problems with him. My kids say, Dad, you got major problems. They remind me of that all the time, <laughs> that I'm nuts. I ended up spending the next 13 days in intensive care in a coma. They had all kinds of equipment hooked up to me and um, continually telling my wife that I wasn't going to make it. Tim came up to be with her. They were actually planning my funeral. And I was sorry to disappoint them, but (laughs) 13 days later, I came out of a coma. And uh, they were actually getting ready to take a breathing tube out. I had things in me all over the place. One of the other pastors at the church there said, Jer, it's a good thing you're unconscious. They walked in the room. I was unconscious. said, Jer, it's a good thing you're unconscious because if you were conscious, you'd pass out, no doubt, when you saw how much they have into you. (laughs) Thirteen days later, I came out of the coma. They said that I would be in the hospital for four to five months, that I would have to learn how to walk. I would have to learn to do all kinds of things. I went to progressive care, was in there for another six days, ended up in rehab. I was in the hospital for a total of four and a half weeks, and I got out. And I, uh, on many occasions, have been able to go back to the hospital and visit people. I went back and visited the doctors. And I walked into the intensive care ward one one night, and they said, sir, can we help you? I was using a cane because I had to learn how to walk again. Sir, can we help you? I said, well, from what I understand, you already have. They said, we don't understand what you're talking about. And uh, then they saw my wife. And I hear over and over again from doctors, you know you're supposed to be a dead man. You know you're not supposed to be here. But my times are in his hands. And as I, as I have journeyed through that whole process, a year later, I was, I was doing really well. I, was on, I didn't have to. They wanted me on all kinds of meds. I was getting off the meds. I was working out like crazy. In January of this year, uh, December of, this, uh, of uh, last year, they, uh, had, I had to go through an MRI or CT scan, getting ready to re- be released to go back to work. And they said, Jerry, we're finding a spot in there that we don't like on your colon. I said, you know, as long as you guys keep looking for something, you're going to find something. So let's stop looking. But I ended up having to go in in January, almost exactly a year later, on January 20th. And I had to have a, one foot of my colon removed, a foot of my small intestine removed, and my appendix removed. Because here, when they were trying to keep me alive, the drugs they were pumping into me had caused this particular section to die. And... Um, So here I was supposed to have an 18 to 24-month recovery. I get 12 months in, and here I am having to have surgery again. I am so grateful and so thankful that for for doctors, for medicine, my church on a Sunday morning, a church of about 500, 600, literally took the entire service to pray for me. And you know what? Uh, What I've heard over and over again from these people is, God obviously has a plan for you. I don't know what it is. I'm anxious. I want to get going again. And then I go and have to have the surgery in January of this year, and I get put on the back burner again. This is actually my first opportunity to preach since I had the surgery in January this year. I'm thankful for what God has allowed me to go through. But I have to be honest with you. I haven't liked it the whole time. 
I'm, I'm a little bit impatient. On October 14th, I have to go meet with an endocrinologist to find out what I have to do going forward. I basically, I have no problems other than the fact that my blood sugar is all over the place. But I'm thankful for what God has brought me through. I'm thankful for what he's doing. And you would ask, what have I learned through this? Well, I've learned to thank God for every day. Every day, I say, God, thank you for the gift of another day. I have five children. I have three grandchildren, another one that's supposed to be born this weekend. I'm thankful that God is giving me the opportunity to walk, I think I am, to walk four daughters down the aisle sometime. That's probably going to set us back big time, but I'm thankful to be able to do it. So far, I don't have to worry about that because I told my daughters, if you can find a guy half as good as your old man, hang on to him. So, Dad, we haven't found anybody half as good as you yet, so I don't have to worry about any weddings coming up here pretty soon. But I'm thankful for the opportunity that God has given me for that. I have learned that I am, I am not invincible. One of the things that, as you are experiencing success as the world determines success, as the world calls success, you think you're invincible. You think you can just keep going. The next day is expected. The next deal is expected. You are invincible. I've learned I'm not. I've learned that I'm, I'm pretty frail. I've learned that the very next breath I take, the very next beat of my heart, the very next beat of your heart, the very next breath you take is ordered by God and God alone. And I can't change that. And you can't change that. It's pretty sobering when you think about it. I've learned that some things just don't matter. You know, some of the things that used to fire me up, now it's like, who cares? It just don't matter. The things that I used to get all wrapped up in, all the, the things that used to bother me, they just don't matter. I've learned what it is to be humbled. When you find yourself totally dependent on nurses taking care of you, that's pretty humbling. Because I never had to have that. It's amazing how now, when I get together and visit with people, they ask me about their medical condition. I, I'm, I just turned 57 years old last week. I, I, I talk to people about hospitals and sickness and stuff like that. I'm thinking, I'm my grandpa already. What in the world's going on? But I'm humbled by the people that take care of people like me in the condition that I was in. I'm learning what it means to be still and know that he is God. And I'm not. Psalm 46.10 has a new meaning to me. Be still and know that, I'm not, uh, that I am God. That's not easy for me. You know, we come and worship every Sunday and we recognize God for who he is. But until you find yourself in a particular situation where you are totally humbled and you realize that you cannot do one thing and you have to rest on something, rejoice in the fact that he is God. He knows your every need. I've learned the truth that he is God and I am not. 
I've learned what Psalm 46, uh, Psalm 31, verse 15 means when it says, My times are in his hands. I'm reminded of the passage. I want you to turn over there with me in Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. I'm going to give you a little bit of background before this. The disciples have just experienced some pretty cool things in Jesus' ministry. They, um, in Mark, Mark chapter 4, they find themselves in a storm in the middle of the Sea of Galilee with Jesus. And you'll remember the story of how Jesus falls asleep, and they said, Master, don't you care? And Jesus is right there in the middle of the storm with them, and they say, they say Master, don't you care? And Jesus wakes up, and he says, Peace be still. And immediately, immediately, the storm was stilled. The disciples saw that firsthand and were told that they marveled. They were astonished at what they saw. Mark chapter 5, they're getting out of that boat that they just were in the storm with. They're getting out of the boat, and they're just getting on shore. And as they're coming up on shore, all of a sudden this well-known, well-renowned, demon-possessed man comes running at them, screaming and hollering at Jesus. Now imagine being a disciple, just going through this thing in the boat, and all of a sudden having this demon-possessed man running and screaming at you. This is a guy that was well-known. They would put chains on him. They would put shackles on him, and there was nobody that could contain him. Imagine being a disciple and, and seeing that. It's like, what in the world is going on? Jesus cast the demons, the legion, out of him into the swine. The swine go into the water, and this demon-possessed man now says, I want to go with you. And Jesus says this, Go home and tell your family and friends what has been done to you. Can you imagine? And I want you to try to hop into this story. Can you imagine this guy going home? There his wife and kids see him coming, and he says, Daddy's home. This guy who was possessed by a demon was out of control. Nobody could control him at daddy's home. Disciples got to see that firsthand. Mark chapter 5. Jesus is ministering to people. Jairus, one of the leaders of that day, comes to him and says, My 12-year-old daughter is on the verge of death. Will you please come? Jesus says, Absolutely. As he's working his way through the crowd, all of a sudden a woman with a bloody issue just reaches out and touches him because she had tried everything else and she said, maybe, just maybe I could touch him and I will be made whole. And immediately she was made whole. And Jesus stops. Now get this. Jesus is on a 911 call to Jairus' daughter. She's on the verge of death and Jesus stops to minister to this woman who had a reputation who was considered unclean, and he spends time with her. Jesus, wait a second. I, 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 have, I have a young daughter. She's 16 now, but I remember teaching this when she was 12 years old, and I was trying to think, what in the world would I say to Jesus if he stopped and thought it was not important to go and take care of my daughter? Think about that. Jesus goes, to Jairus' house, his daughter's dead. Jesus brings her back to life. The disciples were able to see that firsthand. Mark chapter 6. 
Jesus sends out the 12 disciples, two by two. He says, I want you to go out and minister to the people in lands. I want you to go out. You're going to cast out demons. You're going to heal many. And I want you to come back and bring a report back to me. These guys go out and do it, and they're seeing the hand of God. They're seeing the hand of God working on people over and over again. People are being uh, saved. People are being healed. People are being made whole. They come back to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, this is awesome. Jesus says, you know what? Let's get some rest. And his disciples make their way out. They're going to get some rest. And all of a sudden, a crowd of 5,000 men are following them. We want you to teach us. Jesus says, have them be seated. He begins to teach them. Evening starts to come around. says, these people are hungry. They say, well, what are we going to do? Jesus says, feed them. We haven't got anything, Jesus. We've got nothing. Now think about this. Think about what all has just taken place. Jesus says, bring me what you have. So, well, we have five loaves and two fish. Jesus says, have them all sit down and we'll feed them. They were able to witness firsthand Jesus turning five loaves of bread and two fish, making enough to feed 5,000 men, let alone their wives and children, and then to have a basket full each left over for each one of the disciples so that when they collected up everything, every one of the disciples had a basket to look at firsthand. Jesus did that. That was the hand of God. Now, we find ourselves in Mark chapter 6. It's almost though at this point Jesus is saying, I'm going to take you a little bit deeper. We're going to go a little bit deeper in this whole thing. And look with me down at verse 45 of Mark chapter 6. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. This is right after he gets done feeding the 5,000. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully. Jesus is up on the land. He told the disciples, get in the boat and go out into the water. He's up on the land. He's praying, and we're told here that he looks out and he sees them painfully trying to make their way through the water. For the wind was against them, and about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he meant to pass by them. Now understand this. Evening, about 5, 6 o'clock in the evening, he sees that they're struggling out there. You know what time the fourth watch is? 3 to 5 in the morning. Jesus is up praying while his disciples are out on the sea trying to save their lives. A storm has come up that threatens their lives. And we're told that Jesus is watching them. And the thing you need to remember about this is Jesus is the one who told them to get in the boat. Jesus is also the one who calmed the sea a few chapters earlier. But he tells them to get in the boat and he sends them out in the middle of the storm. And he let them spend some time in the storm. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like that. Who does he think he is? We treat God, quite honestly, like he's a bellhop. God, I got this. 
In his heart, a man plans his course. God, I've got this. And if I need you, I'll ring you up. I'll let you know when you need to come in and bail me out. Here's the disciples out in the middle, and it says they were told that Jesus meant to pass by. Now listen, verse 49. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. These are fishermen. These are men. And they're crying like babies, crying out. For they all saw him, and they were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Now listen to this. And he got into the boat with them. Here they're out at sea. They're in the midst of this tempest. They're fearful of their lives. And he's watching them. But then as he goes walking out in the water, as soon as they cried out, what did he do? He got in the boat with them. And he got in the boat with them, the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded again. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. What does that mean when it says they did not understand about the loaves? So I thought about Mark 4, Mark 5, Mark 6. You know what, it, you know what I think they're saying here? They missed it. They missed the hand of God in the everyday practices of life. Even though there were people that were being raised from the dead, which doesn't happen every day in each and every one of our lives, even though he was feeding 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish, that doesn't happen too often. They miss the hand of God. They find themselves in the middle of a storm, and they miss the hand of God because they forgot and they did not understand about the loaves. Jesus is going to take them on a journey well, they are going to find out what it is like to have faith to be strong. Faith that leads to endurance. Faith that is more than holding on to the end. Faith that even leads to more than eternal life. Oswald Chambers says this about eternal life. He says, the real meaning of eternal life is a life that can face anything it has to face without wavering. The real meaning of eternal life. This is a faith that says, even though I cannot see him, even though I may not understand him, even though I may not like what he is doing, I know him and I trust him. Faith that perseveres. Oswald Chambers in his, um, his uh, uh, devotional on May 8th of earlier this year, he says this about a faith to persevere. Perseverance means more than endurance, more than simply holding on until the end. A saint's life is in the hands of God like a bow and arrow in the hands of an archer. God is aiming at something the saint cannot see. But our Lord continues to stretch and strain, and every once in a while the saint says, I can't take any more. Yet God pays no attention. He goes on stretching until his purpose is in sight, and then he lets the arrow fly. Entrust yourself to God's hands. Is there something in your life for which you need perseverance right now? Maintain your intimate relationship with Jesus Christ through the perseverance of faith. Proclaim as Job did, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Faith is not some weak and pitiful emotion, but is strong and vigorous confidence built on the fact that God is holy love. Even though you cannot see him right now and cannot understand what he is doing, you know him. 
Faith is the supreme effort of your life, throwing yourself with abandon and total confidence about God. God ventured his all in Jesus Christ to save us. Now he wants us to venture our all with total abandon, confidence in him. The real meaning of eternal life is a life that can face anything it has to face without wavering. If we will take this view, life will become one great romance, a glorious opportunity of seeing wonderful things all the time. God is disciplining us to get us into the central place of power. Sometimes God takes and stretches us beyond what we can handle. And then he stretches a little bit more. Because he has something in mind. He has something in view. And then he lets it fly. And then you see things from God's perspective and say, Ah, now I understand. The story is told of a a country preacher in the beginning of the 20th century. He lost three of his children in one week to the diphtheria epidemic. He's left with his wife and a three-year-old daughter. Two weeks later was Easter, and he had to preach. Easter Sunday, and he had to preach, two weeks after burying three of his children. Spoke of the amazing love and grace of God. He talked about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And as he preached, people wept. How could he possibly be talking about these things? They sang a song, a song that a lot of us sing on Easter. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living, whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer. Now think about this. This guy just buried his daughter, three of his children earlier. And just the time I need him, he's always near? Really? Really? He led that service, pointing people to Jesus. People began to ask, how could he sing that? Such calm, such peace. As they were leaving the church, a 15-year-old boy said to his father, don't you think they believe this? The dad said, believe what? He said, the Easter story. Dad says, all Christians believe the Easter story. 15-year-old boy said, not like they do. these turbulent times that you might find yourself in, these waves and billows that have us gasping for our next breath as the waves seem to be coming over us, are waves and billows of God's providential permission. God allows that to happen. Jesus sent the disciples out to the middle of the storm. Someone said God's purpose for you and me is that we depend on him and his power now. In the midst of your mess, wherever you find yourself, that you depend on his power now. That you see him walking on the waves, no shore in sight, no success, just the absolute certainty that it is all right because you see him. See, my fear for us, for me, something I'm learning, for the church today, is that like the disciples, we have, been, we have grown numb to the things that God has done in our lives all along the way. You guys pray for people. I, I was impressed that, I, I, I mean, I, I was moved as I heard your elders praying for you who had need. You pray for people. There was a church that prayed for me, and God spared my life, and God answers these prayers. And you know what? For whatever reason, we forget 
we forget the hand of God. We don't see it. And we find ourselves in a situation. We just say, God, where are you? There's a few verses that um, have become real to me and have, have uh, skin on them for me. Job 12.10 says this, In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Job 33.4 says, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. There were people, there were doctors that were saying, Jerry, you were so strong as you were going through that time. You, 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 were, you were strong. I said, I had nothing. I did not know what was going on. I was in a coma. It is God who gave me breath. It is God who gives me life. And it is God who breathed his spirit into you. And my fear is is that we in the church today have gotten over his miraculous work of salvation in our lives. Do you understand what you once were? Do you understand that we were once condemned to hell? And God saved you. Don't ever get over that. Don't ever get over that. I hear people say that it's a God thing. It's not a God thing. God is not an adjective. It is God, period. I don't understand it. It's not a God thing. God's not doing a little thing over here. It's God. It'll change the way you pray. I hear people pray, and I, and I, I, I don't, please don't take offense. I hear people pray, God, be with so-and-so. God, be with them. You know the last thing Jesus said to us before he left this earth? And I will be with you always. You know how we ought to pray? God, make them aware of your presence in the midst of that storm that they're in right now. Make them aware of your presence as you are walking out to the water in them, that you're hopping in the boat with them, that even though they're in the middle of a storm, that you are on the shore and you are watching them. Make them aware of your presence. God, make them aware of your presence as they go to the doctor's office today. Because you know what? If they start to think that way, there's a peace that we can't explain, and that peace comes from the presence of God because we know he's with us. See, my times are in his hands. Your times are in his hands. Our times, whatever times we find ourselves in, are in his hands. And there is no better place to be. Where was Job when he wrote those things? In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. The Spirit of God has made me in the battle. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. Where was Job? He was sitting in the middle of his misery. He had just lost everything. He had boils all over his body, and he was able to say, God's the one who gives me breath. God's the one who gives me life. That was interesting. Last night, your pastor shared with me that when he was going through one of the valleys of his life, his dad, who is now with Jesus, had left him a Bible. And in the Bible, Tim happened to be reading, I think it was Psalm 39. And at the end of Psalm 39... Tim, as he was reading his dad's Bible, his dad had written in there, keep going. And it was just a coincidence that Tim happened to be reading his dad's Bible at one of the valleys of his life, 
And his dad, who is now with Jesus, had written in that Bible, keep going. His times are in God's hand. Your times are in God's hand. My times are in God's hand. God's faithful to give us little glimpses of his presence. I want to remind Christians of this truth as I close. First of all, God loves you. If you are one of his, he loves you. Secondly, our God is in control. When you think, when you read all, when you watch Fox News and you see all this stuff that's going on, our God's in control. He knows our needs. We like to go to God with a laundry list of, please do this, please do that, please do this. If we were to start spending time thanking God, for just make a list of everything you're thankful for. If you were to spend more time being thankful, you would become all the more aware of the fact that He already knows your needs, and He will meet your needs. He knows our needs. He always does what's right. Always. God always does what's right. And here's the cool thing. His timing is absolutely perfect. He's surprised by nothing. His timing is absolutely perfect. Your times, my times, our times are in his hand. Like the disciples, run to him. Cry to him. Not a Christian... Maybe you don't know anything about this peace of God. Man, I want to urge you to run to him, to cry out to him, to ask people, ask one of your pastors here, one of the elders here, to point you to Jesus. I want to remind you of this. God understands. He always understands. And your times are in his hand. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word. Thanks for the trials that you've taken us through. Thanks for the times that you have made your presence known to us. And God, may we be a people here who live in the glory of your work of salvation in our lives and may it be obvious to people that there's something different about them and it's the presence of God. God, give us opportunities to point people to Jesus. Give us opportunities to encourage each other. As we find ourselves in the boat in the midst of the storm, God, that that you would bring other people around us to encourage us and to remind us of your faithfulness. Thanks for this group of people that you've put together here. Thanks for this church. God, make them a church that loves each other. That as people look at the people of this church, that people on the outside look at the people of this church, that they might see Jesus because they reflect the love that you have for your son and your son has for you. So, Father, we, uh, we ask that you would move, that you would change lives, that you would challenge us, that you would cause us to live differently as we go from here. We commit this time to you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.